welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. Thank you, Dale Connolly. You have won the Radio Survivor tagline contest, such as it is. Uh, and what you win is the satisfaction of having provided us with a new tagline. Thank you so much, Dale. Uh, we'll, we'll make sure you know on Twitter and such. Uh, and thank you to everybody who uh, sent in a, a tagline suggestion. You know, I talked to our friend uh, John Anderson the other day, uh, who who apologized for not having sent in a, uh, a, a tagline selection. <laughs> Why, since, did uh, he have so, an idea? Yeah, he said he was trying. He was trying, and he couldn't quite come up with a better encapsulation than we had. So, anyway, I'm Paul Reismanella. I'm one of your hosts and producers. My name is Eric Klein. I'm another host and producer of the radio program. And it only took us 43 episodes to come up with a tagline. Thank you so much to the Twitterverse. The sound of strong communities. Yeah. I think that sure. works. Because we're, uh, you know, it's writ large. I like that. Yeah, community radio, community podcasting. You know, and also includes, I mean, I think it includes public radio, can include commu- co- uh, commercial radio, commercial podcasting, etc. Because, uh, you know, uh, there's communities around all these things. Audio blogs. Yeah. Possibly. Audio uh, blogs. Does that exist? That, don't you remember audio blogs episode one or episode two we talked about why the word podcast exists oh yeah right, audio okay. blog was one of the original suggestions and as soon as i heard that um it changed my mind forever that audio blogging was uh it was gonna stay video blogging still exists the vlog the yes. vlog it still exists well that's why i like strong communities because um it was perplexing i've thought about it since we began the project um well what about the YouTube channel that fits into all these categories that we love, except it also has a video component. It's it should be included in our list, but if we only talk about radio or audio, it gets excluded. But community vlogging is what I'm getting at. Exactly. Community live streaming. And and the interesting thing is that a lot of shows that are video based are, are really podcasts. Yeah, I think talking like, heads. Yeah, like Majority Report, mm-hmm. right? Which which is actually sort of a vestige of uh, Air America. Uh, and it's actually released as an audio podcast as well. Right. So you can watch on YouTube, you get the audio. Uh, the Twit Network, This Week in Tech, pretty much all their shows are, are, are live video. Sure. But of course, you can listen to them all as, uh, as, po- as audio podcasts as I, well. I was thinking more about uh, the kinds of live broadcasts that were particularly interesting, uh, both during the Occupy uh, moment oh, yeah. of, of 2012, as well as the Ferguson moment of, was that 2015, where all of these... Uh, um, it's it's difficult to label them without without judging them. We're we're all of these uh very uh active news events of of street protests with the police response were being live streamed on video. That to me uh, uh resembled community radio reporting, but was being done uh just with a phone. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it to me, you you see a direct line from that uh, independent media center movement, right? right which sprung up in the uh, with the uh, protest against the WTO in Seattle in 1999, uh, when there was no Twitter, uh, there there was little to no extant mobile broadband. The idea that you could take live video and audio with a phone. Uh, was pretty much non-existent. Right. Um, I remember seeing some of the first examples of some live video streaming from a phone 
in maybe around 2006, mm-hmm. there were some early Nokia models, and 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 there was a, a service called Quick Q Q I K, and I saw this demo at uh, Streaming Media, uh, which is a, a conference for the online video industry, and and I really and at the moment I'm like this is great, but. The handset's like really expensive. You can't get one with a subsidy and almost nobody can watch it. But it's a, you know, if boy, if it could work and here we are, we all just take it for granted. Uh, I don't take it for granted. I'm, I'm just old enough that it all seems like a miracle. Yeah, exactly. It is. It is definitely a miracle. And yeah, I think we want to encompass all of that in some ways. It makes me go, oh, but we call it a podcast radio survivor. <laughs> the sound of strong communities. Gosh, maybe we need to change the name of the podcast. Anything's possible. You know, uh, what do you what do you folks think? Folks are listening here as we as we're just live kind of bouncing this back and forth. Uh, you know, should should we broaden it? I mean, we love radio and we don't want to give up radio here. We come from radio and we come from radio. But I've, I've been working in the online video industry uh, since, you know, the early early part of the uh, century. I don't uh, imagine I'm going back to radio anytime soon. So yeah, radio survivor. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, Com- you know, the sound of strong communities. It's sort of like the sound of young America. I that, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> well, they they well, rebranded too. Well, so every- Jesse Thorne, a uh, he doesn't need it anymore. Royalty. He's- well, and the thing is, it's because Jesse's not so young anymore. I think that's why he had to give up on the uh, sound of young America. He's got he's a kid. Young, he's young at heart, and he's married. He runs this company, Maximum Fun. So. You know. Anyway, what do you folks think? We'd love to know. Uh, tweet us at Radio Survivor or uh, send us an email, uh, podcast at uh, radiosurvivor.com. Later on in the show, we're going to hear from Jennifer Waits, who's going to update us on what's going on in college radio yeah, this she, week. She went to the, um, the UC convergence uh, for, for college radio stations in the UC system. So she'll have a report back. And next week on the show, you'll definitely want to tune in because Matthew Lassar, who is our uh, our colleague here at Radio Survivor, has a new book coming out. Yeah, Matthew's been so busy that you haven't heard his voice of late on the Radio Survivor program. And uh, part of the reason why you haven't heard from him is because here here it comes. You're, now, now we're really going to be hearing from him because his book is, is hitting the shelves. Um, it, what is it about? It is Radio 2.0. And so really it's it's an examination of radio now where, how it the medium has gotten to where it is and again it's expansive so he's he is he is taking into account all those forms of radio we often try to encourage people to think of radio as you know online uh streaming etc he's taking all that and it is sort of like a, it's like a, the new text i think in really is is my perspective you know if if for it's the new way to be thinking about radio and it's a really a massive achievement so he's going to be on uh next week to tell us more about this new book radio 2.0 I'm by really Matthew Lassar. yeah yeah we're trying to we're trying to stay current we're trying <laughs> trying to be exciting here uh but one of the things I want to talk about uh, this week in particular is this article that was published in Slate last week um, that's got a lot of folks who care about podcasting and public radio talking. Um, it's And uh, in some ways, I think it has people talking because, like many online articles, has a provocative title and people respond to the title. You know, they see it in their Facebook feed or they see it on Twitter and they respond to the title without actually – 
reading <laughs> the article itself. Does the title predict the end times for uh, national public radio? It does not. Okay. The title is The Fight for the Future of NPR. That's it's a, a little, yeah, it's a little apocalyptic. A slow-moving bureaucracy, an antiquated business model, a horde of upstart competitors, can national public radio survive? And it's a reported article, so you know this is it's not a uh, it's not a bomb, and it's it's not a it's not a hit piece, and it's not an opinion piece. It's 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 reported, and on balance, I think it's actually pretty pretty balanced. Which means that they uh, not only did they have an opinion, well, the, a non-reported piece would be here's my opinion, and here's the reasons why you should believe yeah. me. This is I talked to. This dozens of experts, and here's what they yeah, all exactly talk told to me. folks like Alex Davidson, who uh, co-founded uh, Planet Money uh, uh, for with NPR, along with Alex Bloomberg. Alex Davidson now is working with the New York Times on their audio and podcasting projects. Talk to Jay Allison, who is a longtime NPR guy um, since pretty much the early days of NPR in the 70s. He now is the host of The Moth and also a producer. Uh, very well respected. Talk to Eric Newsom, who now uh, heads up sort of basically podcasting at Audible, uh, which is owned by Amazon. And he used to be the head of content at NPR. And you were just telling me that um, Audible, which would be known, uh, especially to podcast fans, as an audiobook uh, purveyor, is making a huge push into a, the, uh, another form of uh, into something of that basically looks content. like podcasting. Yeah, yeah. exactly. To, and wrapping that into their, I think they're uh, calling it offering. radio. I think they're calling it radio. If, yeah. if you want to talk about corporate branding, yeah, I've, I, you know, I, I haven't done my homework yet for that, so we, I can't really speak much to it. Um, but they framed the article is framed with a presentation that Eric Newsom gave just before he left NPR, and he gave it to bigwigs at NPR, in which he, you know, sort of drew out a profile. Of, of, a, of a millennial listener, right, named, named, named Lara. And, it, and, and it, with the example that basically we're not serving her. She's not listening to us. And a stat that's in the article is that NPR's median average listening age has, or median age on average, has climbed from 45 to 54 years old in recent years. As the years go by, as the years isn't it the same by. person? <laughs> yeah, it makes you wonder. And it, and and sort of debate has been been more heated recently because there was uh, basically a, a mandate put out by NPR that they would not mention their podcasts or their NP, NPR One app, their listening app, on their terrestrial shows. Yeah, like afraid, I guess people would be bled off. Well, away it, from their radios. You know, it, it, I think that's. That's a real fear, uh, actually, you know, and I don't actually think it's a silly fear. And this idea that NPR is facing competition from podcasting, mm -hmm. I think, is not entirely accurate. Sure. Um, now, well, it's, it's true that podcasting, right, is attracting a lot of people to audio programming outside of terrestrial radio. And I think one can argue, although I don't have the statistics to prove this, that many of these listeners otherwise don't listen to radio. They're not being peeled away from NPR. They're being served in a way that maybe they never either NPR never served them or they never even thought to turn to NPR. I mean, I, I always I mean, as as a person in his 40s, his mid 40s, I remember back 
to my mid-20s. And my dad would always want to listen to NPR in the car or when I was even like in high school. I was like, oh, dad, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to listen to this NPR. I want to listen to Howard Stern. I want to listen to rock radio, et cetera. And we'd fight over, right? And, I, and for a while, my, <laughs> I, I worked at the same uh, community college my father did in the summer. So we had an agreement and he was willing to put up with Howard Stern in the morning, but we had to listen to All Things Considered on the way home in the evening. And I really felt like a grand bargain NPR wasn't for me. Yeah. Although I became a listener later on in my later twenties and in my thirties. And I, 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 so I sometimes wonder if the idea of like, uh, you know, millennials aren't listening to NPR is, is, should be expected. Like folks in their twenties just aren't so interested. Yeah. Just wait, just wait. <laughs> not that they, sh- not that that I'm not going to couch that as a good or a bad thing, but sure. I wasn't so interested either. And in some ways I feel like NPR of now does a better job of speaking to young people than the NPR of my twenties or mm-hmm. my teens. Makes sense. Uh, especially when it comes to music, arts and culture programming, it seemed very staid and very, uh, very PBS ish, uh, very PBS ish, uh, uh, you know, highbrow, highbrow, middle brow, middle I would brow. say. Right. You know, and, uh, the idea that, you know, NPR would be reviewing, you know, death metal records as they do now or 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 speaking much more to, uh, you know, uh, to Latino culture or right. to African-American culture and taking it very seriously, hip hop and things like this, but also um, inviting people who are not middle aged white guys to talk about <laughs> the culture and, and 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 this and and this work. I did. It, you wouldn't have expected it in, in, in uh, the 1990s. So. I, I sometimes question this sort of this, although I, you know, be, and then much of it's based upon the idea that people form their habits as teenagers and in their twenties, and so if we don't help them form the NPR habit, maybe they'll never get it, and and it's and it's understandable as well because if they form this other habit, they may just come to this point where they don't even realize they need or want uh, traditional talk public radio because I think yeah. that's mostly what we're talking about is News. talk programming. Um, but I think at, at the same time, I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that that podcasting these podcasting upstarts are a threat per se. They should be paid attention to. Uh, and I work in podcasting, and and you know, and yet uh, much of what you know my company does and what so many podcasting companies do is more entertainment. Then mm-hmm. it is news, even if it has a newsish element. They're discussing and there's commentary on the news, like on like the Slate podcast, like right, political like, gabfest. It's not a news program per se. I listen to the Slate political gabfest all the time. I think I would call it a. I, I consider it news. You, you. I mean, you can learn about the news, yeah. right? But it's it's sort of the same way of like um, it's it's more like it's, an, it's uh, analysis. Yeah, it's more news. like Meet the Press, right? You know, than it is the night night NBC nightly news. Sure, um, but. But at the same time, I do think, yes, it's important for for national public radio to exist for all of its faults. And there are many faults, especially people who come from community radio and or maybe used to more radical reporting uh, that is less sort of mainstream and uh, less, you know, trying less trying to uh, uh, encompass a, a, such a broad audience. You, you can find all sorts of faults with NPR, yet they still when it comes to radio news. At this moment in time, they lead the pack in the United States because commercial radio is all but abandoned uh, news for all in, in right. intents and purposes. Um, but I think the problem with NPR in a lot of ways, 
and I, I have a lot of empathy in certain ways, has less to do with the fact that it is that it is a big uh, bureaucracy that doesn't that has a hard time moving quickly, which, which I think is 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 true. So much as it's the very model, it is the network affiliate model. Mm-hmm. I think which is part of its problem. Um, if we compare NPR to other public broadcasting systems, it's almost singular in the fact that it is a network affiliate model. So you should, you should define that for, for me and for other people, if they were not familiar, the BBC we think of is probably, you know, often people, when they think of public, you know, global public radio, they think of the BBC perhaps being the, the, the crown jewel. Mm-hmm. Um, it's stations within the UK are all BBC owned stations, right? The, 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 and, and, and while I think in America, we, we identify the BBC with, uh, with, you know, like the world news, um, it's also music, it's sports, it encompasses a wide variety of programming and often, and as well as local stations and local stations that provide local news, local programming. Uh, so, and, 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 you know, so if you're listening to, to NPR London versus, uh, NB, yeah, versus, and, and I'm sorry, BBC London versus, uh, BBC, uh, in another city, you, you, you will hear national programming, which you'll also hear local programming. Mm-hmm. The same is true of the CBC. The Canadian Broadcasting Company, and Canadian broadcasting looks more like the U.S. than than the British. They've had commercial broadcasting much longer than they have in the U.K. Um, commercial broadcasting, college broadcasting, community broadcasting in Canada are relatively well developed. On you know, in some ways, on par with the U.S. And yet, they also have the CBC. And again, those stations are owned by the CBC. They are not affiliates here. NPR does not own a single station, mm-hmm. right? For instance, and there are, and, and the thing is, this NPR is not our only public radio network. We also have Public Radio International. We have American Public Media. Um, on top of the fact that individual stations syndicate their own programming, like WNYC, uh, WBEZ in Chicago, and then you also now have a third, not even a third, but another syndicator, the Public Radio Exchange, which is again independent. It's it's not part of NPR. It's not part of Public Radio International. So we have this very kind of uh, – in some ways, the interesting part is it's heterogeneous. So there is room for innovation that comes from a lot of different sides, even if NPR is sort of your uh, – what people most identify as public radio and is certainly the largest organization. And it's also an independent organization, not owned and operated by the government itself. Mm-hmm. It's funded partially through the Corporation of Public Broadcasting, which is funded through tax appropriations, but also, again, we have to point out, not actually a government agency. It is an independent nonprofit funded by the federal government, but unlike the CBC or the BBC, not at all actually formally part of the federal government. You were you just had mentioned that the affiliates in this in this network uh have have freedom to innovate but the first thing i thought of was um how how much of their budget has to go towards paying for the na- national public radio programming and then what they have left over is really very little for yeah. very much innovation and i think that's that's the problem and that's why i want why i said the affiliate network problem is part of the issue right so npr has to super serve its affiliates that it, it exists for the purpose of its of having affiliates right it, it is it is founded as a terrestrial radio network <laughs> that serves affiliates with programming 
Um, and so, and affiliates, I think, have, it, it's not absurd for them to be concerned if a flagship program like All Things Considered were to be available as a podcast and, and allowing listeners to ba- uh, basically circumvent them. Uh, and because right now, All Things Considered and Morning Edition are two shows not available as podcasts. Yeah, but Fresh Air. Which is, you know, a right. very popular show for all the affiliates. But it is based, but it's produced at an affiliate as well. Right. Uh, you know, but right. So many other programs are because they're uh, NPR's acts as a distributor, maybe co-producer, but there's these arrangements get very uh, sort of Byzantine. complex. <laughs> uh, but right. In terms of like strictly network produced programs, right. Uh, fewer of them are available as podcasts. And that's, I think, what is in part behind not mentioning NPR One, which is their uh, smartphone app for listening to programs, which includes because uh, uh, that would hurt the affiliates. Except uh, affiliates are welcome to add their programming to the uh, feed. So the way it works is you sort of start a feed, and NPR One pulls segments for you and plays them in sequence, and you can skip them. And so it's sort of like Pandora in that way. But uh, you can hear uh, if you live in Oregon, you can hear OPB Oregon Public Broadcasting segments if you live in la you might hear things uh from the, the la affiliates you might hear things from wnyc so in local new York. news and local it includes local yeah it, along with inter, along with national programming um but it does nevertheless take you away from a terrestrial signal um and i think that that is that is something which is not being paid enough attention because as you said Affiliates have the opportunity to innovate, but if we actually start to look at them, we see that 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 many of them don't, and they I don't. don't they think just it, don't have the the staff. I think that that's often the case. Yeah, I think when you go outside of a a, a huge metroplex and a well established, uh, very well established station or or set of stations, uh, like in Chicago, New York, L.A., um, it gets much more difficult when you go to a smaller city or even to a statewide system like Oregon public broadcasting, um, just paying the fees for the programming, which is usually based upon the listening audience Mm. can take up a significant part of that budget. And, you know, I can argue, I can bring up an argument for why a lot of national programming should not be taken (laughs) by, by, um, I think it's come up on the podcast. Yes. uh, By, by, by particular weekend, uh, programming that's in rerun has, with, with, uh, has yeah, caught your attention with the voices of the dead with the voice of the dead. Um, but uh, at the same time, you also understand how people look for all things considered shows like all things considered fresh air. They look for them and it is really the bread and butter in the same way that uh, a local NBC affiliate doesn't necessarily have to carry every primetime program. But if they don't carry probably Law and Order SVU, uh, they'll hear from their viewers. Um, you know, if the local CBS affiliate doesn't take uh, Big Bang Theory, they're going to hear from their from their viewers, uh, even if they're not necessarily contractually ob- obliged to take. that Why program. did you just mention two of the the most garbage? <laughs> because shows. they're very popular shows. Because they're very very popular. So is this shows. where I should derail your rant and and talk about popularity versus? Uh, pragmatism i'm not like these, uh, no these, it's totally pragmatic no but my, my point being is that is that right so you have the affiliates are dependent upon npr right right and can and, and npr's fortunes and what npr does affects the affiliates and they have often these short-term needs meaning how do we make our next 
our next fundraising goal, our next pledge drive goal. And they, you know, and so let's just say that a, a, let's say someone argued that as a strategic move, as a long-term strategic move, NPR should turn, uh, all things considered, the afternoon news magazine into podcasts. But what if in the short term, that results in lower listenership in the destruction of the affiliates, right? And and for the affiliates, it may mean next year's pledge drive is down 10, 15, 20 percent. Even if in the long term, maybe there's a turnaround, they may not have the wherewithal, they may not have the reserves to actually tolerate that 10 or 15 percent dip. It may actually mean that they need to lay off staff because they can't still afford to give up the big flagship programming because they would see an even greater dip in their ratings and in, in their contributions. So I do think it's a real it's a real problem. This is all coming to a head because the baby boomers are old. Well, right. I love the baby boomers. They're and, and, getting old. And at some point, they're not going to be the the bulk of any audience. Right. You have to be always looking towards that audience development. And I have I have a uh, I have a proposal of sorts for for NPR as a network. Are you listening, affiliates. National Public Radio executives? And my suggestion is is that to make the digital strategy incredibly inclusive of your affiliates. So one is as we we've been sort of dancing around, you know, Outside of a few major stations, if you ask people about public radio podcasts, you're not going to hear about them coming much from many other states. You're not, you know, if you ask someone, what's your favorite public radio podcast, they're unlikely to mention something produced. This American Life. But, right. By yeah. Kansas Public Radio. Um or or even upper, you know, even even, you know, stations in 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 upstate New York. And and I and, and Rather than criticizing them, let's understand the dilemma they face in trying to keep the very vital and important terrestrial operation going while and then being able to then what can they allocate to what in some cases may be experiments. Right. Right. That, you know, could be expensive, maybe aren't too expensive, but when not focused on the air product, will always uh, probably raise the eyebrows of boards of trustees, boards of directors, perhaps even some donors who uh, contribute quite a significant amount of money and therefore have the ear of people at the station. What if NPR were a partner in this? What if there were a way, and, and, and it could, you know, that if, let's just say, uh, all things considered, if you listen to all things considered in many markets, it's not just the national feed. There will be usually some local news headlines, but often there will also be local stories slotted in, right? There's this clock and you will hear a story uh, about, a, about a, you know, something happening locally. Well, yeah, there's at, at the end of the of the top of the hour headlines or uh, sometimes a half hour. There's a there's a chunk for. Right. But it can be news. even a full segment. It could be three, four, ten minutes even uh, of a local story slotted in. So what if that were integrated in the podcast? And so what if instead of being able to subscribe to all things considered from NPR, you would subscribe to all things considered from Oregon Public Broadcasting or all things considered from WNYC or all things considered from uh, Chicago Public Media? And it would be that program. Now – but for each affiliate, they may not quite currently be in the have the technical ability to pull this off. But what if that 
they had the help of the national to do such a thing, to both provide some of the technical resources, maybe even some of the funding to do so, and to be able to coordinate the distribution of that funding. Because with podcasting, as, as I think most people listening to the show are aware, uh, you're not beholden to the underwriting rules. You can have real advertising. Uh, and so what if there were this coordination to help these stations use national programming in a podcasting sort of ways in a way that they might benefit financially, but also benefit from listenership or NPR were to help funnel uh, money to uh, affiliates to help them experiment, to help, to, to help them create things, you know, you know, I mean, NPR, I mean, it's not as if these things don't happen, but I think, in a lot of ways, NPR as the sort of the brand name of public radio in the United States could do more uh, to help its affiliate stations uh, do these things, you know, and maybe it's underwritten or maybe it's part of the NPR banner. But I think I have a hard time criticizing station because I know that, that that a lot of these affiliates that aren't in huge major metroplexes are doing their darndest to stay on the air in many cases um, and that there aren't – I'm not I, – I don't – I don't think there are too many cynical uh, station managers going, screw the audience. We don't want to do more local service so much as that they're stuck often between a rock and a hard place and it may be difficult – you could criticize them perhaps because it may be difficult to be innovative. It may be difficult to uh, think creatively, especially when you may have, you know, your boss may be a university president and board of trustees who look at your station as a as a cost and and barely as a benefit, right? As opposed to some of the stations which are independently owned, which uh, by their own nonprofits, uh, it's you know that diversity. I think in public radio in the United States. Is, is often a benefit is often a uh, is often something which creates new and interesting things, but as a result, sometimes also is a huge uh, dependency and, and can be a real difficulty. And I think the same model can go through can, can could be true for community radio. Right. And, and fewer community stations are NPR affiliates than they used to be, but many are. And they, if they don't take all things considered, they take other programs. Um, the Pacifica Network often behaved like the NPR of community radio and still does in a lot of ways um, and provides services that some many stations I think are still unaware of, like Audioport, the ability to share and have a basically distribution model for their programs. Um you know, I think that these are opportunities and even and for community radio, it could be if not, you know, coordinated by Pacifica, it can certainly be in regional alliances. It can be in ways in which resources can be pooled. Uh, the problem is, of course, someone still generally has to pay for it. Right. It's hard to do all of this simply on the backs of volunteers. Um, it, it often helps to bring in uh, folks uh, who are paid for their time if for no other reason that there are lots of very talented radio people who uh, can't afford to be volunteers because uh, if that if they're going to spend that time uh, any or any time they spend outside their another job is dedicated to you know family and other other important very important uh, uh, obligations but if they could be paid for their time would be able to, uh, to to put it in paid paid to innovate paid to make new uh, local radio programs that would matter to their audiences yeah. Exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, you know, we have to suggest it for it to even possibly be true. 
but that's that's sort of my take. Um, you know, absolutely, I think that a national public radio, all public radio, um, should be paying attention to trying to serve uh, younger people, and and also look at the horizon and recognize that radio. The, the the platform of radio is shifting. It is moving online. It is moving to podcasting, and it's slow. It's sort of glacial, but it's sort of glacial in, in the midst of of climate change. Doesn't feel so slow these days, <laughs> right? It, well, it, right. It's sort of a fast melt, yeah, um, compared to uh, what it might have once the last been. fifteen years. Yeah, I think the next fifteen years are going to be a lot more disruptive, as as they say in certain parts of the country. Um. Yeah, and I think paying attention to that, but I think that NPR can be a partner to its its local stations right. in, in in weathering this. And perhaps they are. Perhaps there are things afoot that we don't know about. Uh, certainly, that's that's possible because neither you nor I work at a uh, public radio station. All I do or is privy listen. to it. So, but that's just I'm going to throw it. I also want to uh, mention a few things that our friend Ernesto Aguilar, who is a program director at KPFT in Houston, he wrote a piece on Medium that I think uh, a lot of people have also appreciated. In response to the Slate story. Um, and he sort of responds to the, I think, the zeitgeist more so than the article necessarily. He writes, uh, the problem with these obituaries is that they underestimate radio's reach, brand loyalty, and many financial and other investments in the medium. And I think he's right. I think that's an argument we continue to make here mm-hmm. at Radio Survivor. And he says, NPR is tougher than you think. He says, podcasts are great, but they're not crushing NPR yet. And I think that's probably right. Um he says, us versus them in any bet against NPR doesn't f- doesn't favor the challenger. And I think if we think about NPR, the radio network, I think he's right. Online's a different thing. Podcasting is a different thing. And, uh, and I think, you know, in as much as many people shift are shifting their listening to podcasts as a percentage of the radio audience right now on a daily basis, it's quite low. The numbers aren't quite there. I'm bullish on podcasting. I think it's wonderful, and I think it's a wonderful opportunity for innovation, for new programming, for community programming, for all sorts of things that we really just did not see in the audio medium for a long time, right? If we if we think of, of, of whether it's sort of free-flowing interviews or uh, improv comedy or dissections of, of albums and music. These are things that were sort of absent from radio being the dominant uh, sort of audio, talk audio medium uh, for a long time. Yeah. Serialized storytelling. Yeah. There was, I mean, you know, you, 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 you did have some of these examples more so often in the BBC uh, in the uh, ABC, the Australian broadcasting company um, than you did in, in anything in the U S um, but uh, you know, I think th- What's great about podcasting is that I think it's growing the pie. It's instead of it being a uh, I think zero sum game. Zero sum game. We're seeing now yeah. radio is becoming bigger in a different way. And what you mean is that uh, new listeners are learning to enjoy the act of listening mm-hmm. first through podcasts, and then yeah. those might be people who are converted into a radio audience uh, when after. So it's not it's not robbing radio of its listeners. It's adding. Radio yeah, I think listeners. so. I think there's definitely a, a sense of that because, again, a lot of elements of radio in particular, it's robustness. It's uh, need for no data or Internet. Um, it's live nature benefit 
some certain types of programming. Uh, news, breaking news in particular, right, continues to uh, benefit NPR in particular. Never mind sports, especially live sports, which is not something which NPR does. The BBC does it, for instance. But nevertheless, it's keeping quite a bit of AM radio alive mm-hmm. because you can still get your – you can still get Listen your – the baseball game. Baseball, football, basketball games uh, as well as uh, collegiate sports. And I don't think that's trivial. I think it's actually still important because um, – you know, again, for folks who maybe are driving or engaged in work where they're allowed to listen to things but can't be looking at things, uh, being able to get the ball game is is still, I think, a vital connector. Right? I'm not a, I'm not a particular sports fan myself, but it does. I think it has a function of bringing people together in communities right. around teams uh, and around national events, um, and that all still weighs heavily in radio's favor uh and 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 one might say to npr one might make the argument i'm not sure if i would if it's an argument that i make but is that well double down on what you're good at and you're very good at uh you know still very good at breaking news uh, global news uh things that are of the minute and maybe you don't need to be competing as much on the stage with uh the political gab fest or with serial or with, uh, or with you know, a lot of other sort of podcast formats. So maybe it's time to figure out how to adapt these, uh, these strengths to podcasting, not to compete, but to basically super serve the audience with something that is vitally important still, and so that it's there. And I, I tend to think that uh, younger folks come around. You know, they come around to recognizing they may need this news at a particular time because as their lives and, and everything changes and I, I'm, I'm less inclined to fret too much about the 25 year old who isn't listening to public radio. If there are fewer 45 year olds listening to public radio now, that <laughs> I would fret about that <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> so what do you, what do you folks think? Let us know. Send us an email podcast at radio survivor.com. I mean, in some ways we're just thinking out loud here. I'm just trying to uh, to add to the debate and and think about uh, how this medium of radio in all of its forms uh, continues to grow and prosper. And because I think it's important, it's important to have this rich, diverse uh, landscape of audio programming that can serve many different audiences, many different ways. All I can think about is um, how I don't really care. <laughs> so I'm not going to talk about that. No, I, maybe you should. Yeah. Why okay. don't you care? Um, because you know. So I listen to OPB, and um, it's so much just filler. Like they're not they're not providing me with information in a you know, and it's the national programming. Uh, even even a good portion of the All Things Considered news style. It's just, um, they're not, you know, it's not for renters. It's for people who own their homes and it's not, it's not for, for working people. It's for, it's for the desk class. Uh, and I, you know, I had a friend that, um, a, a work friend, I never met him, but that would say that, that the Pacifica radio landscape was there to, uh, I think his expression was to comfort the uncomfortable and that the NPR's job was to comfort the comfortable. 
I think I was thinking about this earlier and I couldn't remember if the actual idea was that Pacifica was there to make the comfortable uncomfortable. That might have been the secondary purpose. I, I've heard that. Yeah, I've yeah. heard that exact quote. And so, I mean, I was just listening to uh, to Morning Edition this morning and uh, they were talking about uh, baked goods made by women who um, had just got out of prison. So it's a very interesting story. But the, the, the two people sitting in front of microphones discussing this were definitely, definitely like, uh, like looking down. Insulated middle-class people. Yes. <laughs> Upper middle-class. I I so I, if I, I very rarely hear more than about 25 minutes of, of morning edition. Right. That's about all the time I have. I have, a, I have quite an interesting commute now that I was uh, forced out of my walkable neighborhood by rising rents. So I drive, I drive uh, about an, I'm in my car for over an hour every day yeah. now, and I listen to a lot of OPB. I choose OPB over other radio stations because I prefer a dense, written news content. And if I could get that from a different kind of radio station, I would love to. But my my community radio stations are not providing that here in Portland. Very few do because it's expensive, right? Because but that's what I used to get in my yeah. Bay Area listening habits was KPFA, the station that I happened to work for because I was a fan of it first. That's that's important. I would I was a listener before I was a worker. Um, they would provide a lot of uh, written, densely informative content that was a lot more interesting. You know, not all just uh, soothingly comfortable. And I think that's a that is an, a very trenchant uh, criticism and observation. And I don't disagree with any points you've made. Um, I tend to I mean, so uh, for, for better or worse, I tend to have a structural view of things. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, I so I sort of see public radio as a good meaning good. It's a good thing. Yeah, no, me too. Right? I like I like it, but it, I wish it could be better. Right. Exactly. Or perhaps wish that there were the a station providing that true alternative. Yeah, and I'll agree with you because my main criticism of what I get with – that's the problem is I didn't want to just talk about myself. Yeah, sure, but, but that's, that's all, okay. That's I think all it's, I know. I think it's important. But so Oregon Public Broadcasting, my, my, my home uh, public radio experience uh, is far too light on the local content that matters to me, a resident of the city of Portland. It's uh, it's only an hour a day, basically, other than some of the headlines that come along during those news packages, which I really appreciate uh, when they do come. But uh, I'm tired of listening to to uh, what people in Boston have to say about national affairs, uh, let alone New York City sometimes in Washington, D.C. Right. I think that's I think that's right. And that's why I sort of propose the idea that npr be more of a, a be a better partner yeah well yeah it, yeah it would be nice if they could could act yeah be a, a partner strengthening the local newsrooms yeah because that's really missing uh, i also happen to know that oregon public broadcasting is is hiring in their newsrooms uh slowly but surely growing their capacity to report on local stories i think every station wants to if they don't it's not generally uh you know what I mean? I, I don't think there's any any that don't want to. Right. Uh, reporters cost money. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, Cumulus proved, as we talked last week, <laughs> even even when the station is profitable. Um, exactly. 
I think, I think that's right. And, you know, it's sort of a, you know, it just follows on a little bit from our conversation last week where, you know, free is tough, right? Um, it has, these things have to be paid for one way or another, whether it's, uh, through advertising, whether it's through subscriptions, whether it's, uh, through, you know, uh, listener donations, tax dollars, grants, et cetera. Someone somewhere is going to have to pay that bill. Um, if, because it's going to be very difficult to ask people to become, uh, reporters in, in, you know, in, in, in a certain model in their spare time, they could live as volunteers, they could live in the basement of the station, Mm -hmm. stack them up like, uh, and that's not to put aside community, the value of, of community reporting, right? Oh, I, uh, it's, uh, I would prefer some, uh, some well-trained community reporters any day. Yeah. It's just that they, they tend to, to have to pay the rent. Right. Or you need, or what they need often is, is a, is an, is editors, people who can help them yeah. take also a, their perspective. Also a job. Huh? I mean, exactly. You need, yeah. yeah, you have to pay the editors to right. be there every day. Well, it's, it's how, you know, you know, Otherwise people they don't say eat. they, it's like people say they get their news from Twitter and I'm like, sure. Most of the time you're getting a headline that someone has tweeted from an article that someone was probably paid to write, or yeah. at least is from a platform that costs money to exist. Even or if they weren't paid. I, I like all my, uh, my Twitter feed is filled with people who are paid to be on the scene of these stories. Yeah. They write the stories and tweet about them. And so you have these moments like Occupy or like Ferguson, as, as you mentioned, where you, you have true citizen reporters on the ground tweeting and you're getting news there and that's real. And I think that's important, right. but it's also ephemeral. It's difficult to follow and will miss a lot of people because yeah. of those facts. And that's not a criticism of the people doing the work. It's the fact that uh, editing and packaging exists because they add value. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when you talk about uh, the Ferguson and the related protests, my mind immediately goes to Sean King, who's become sort of the uh, uh, one of the preeminent person in social media uh, aggregating, if I must use that word, that content. And he is a paid journalist. Yeah. He's, he's a huge presence on the Twitter and the Facebook talking about these social justice issues in, in black communities. And he's also uh, paid to write words for a media organization. So right. It comes, you need both. It takes that time and attention. That's difficult to, to find the time to do uh, when you have another job and a family or especially often hard to do if you don't have a job and you have a family and there's, yeah. and you're worrying about a lot of different issues. So um, it's not, a, these aren't easy questions and I'm not, I don't actually, I don't in, intend to, uh, I don't think I'm making an easy prescription no, yeah. nor am I necessarily convinced that my prescription is, is the right one uh, so much as that. I think we need in some ways to, to step to, to examine the model itself and to look at some of the deficiencies in the model itself, because it does, I think, have an effect on the players and 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 the product and and the programming itself. That probably the the deficiencies or the problems that you identify listening to Morning Edition come to some extent from all of these structural imbalances. Um, that would be a political economic argument, and I still stick by it. <laughs> 
All right. Is the horse still breathing or should we beat it again? I think we talked about this issue. I'd love to, you know, it'll come up again in future episodes, I'm sure. Absolutely. And again, we'd love to hear what you have to say about it. We, uh, uh, critique us uh offer some other uh proposals uh add your two cents to the mix you can send us an email podcast at radiosurvivor.com if you uh would like to comment perhaps uh, send us a little audio commentary do it just on your smartphone email it to us uh that would be great we'd love to we'd love to bring in uh your voice and add it to the mix coming up in just a moment we're going to hear about the world of college radio with our college radio watch correspondent Jennifer Waits. Well, we're joined on the line by Jennifer Waits of College Radio Watch. Hello, Jennifer. Hey, Eric. So you went to an, uh, you're back from another conference. So many conferences. I know. This was very close to home, so it was hard to resist. I went to the UCRN conference, which stands for UC Radio Network. And it's a conference that happens twice a year at a different college radio station in california right because because for those for those who don't know yet the university of california system is a large uh, series of uh, big colleges and they have many radio stations on on several of their campuses and so all those radio station folks get to get together uh twice a year yeah and they've been they've been getting together for a really long time um the university of california system holds licenses for a number of FM stations. So that brings them together in a way because they have a common license holder. And there are also campuses that have unlicensed stations and online stations. So it's, it's a great kind of uh, grassrootsy, um, very low key conference that different stations host every semester right yeah so and and, i mean one of those stations is my favorite college radio station from my bay area days the mighty calyx at uc berkeley and another one of those stations uh has had its name dropped uh several times in in a fantastic light uh because we've been talking about um the davis station uh kdvs uh if you haven't heard the previous episodes was mentioned uh many times by its its uh, former uh, volunteer student staff members or uh, paid student staff members uh, mentioned uh, many times in a fantastic light by its former staff members who've gone on to do other radio things and so so there's a lot there's a lot going on in the UC system and you you got a chance to visit the um, yeah. you were down in Santa Cruz this time yeah so on um, the 9th of April it was a Saturday. I went to visit KZSC, which is the station at UC Santa Cruz, which is a really interesting station because they have their own sort of house in the woods. The UC Santa Cruz campus is really beautiful. It's in yeah. the Santa Cruz Mountains. On the hills so, overlooking the ocean. Yeah. So the, the station is this sort of wooden cabin-like building all by itself in the woods. So we started out just kind of hanging out there. People took tours of the station. Uh, There's lots of cool stuff to look at, you know, walls full of records and sticker covered cabinets, lots of interesting art pieces. Um, Something I'd never seen at a station, they had a quilt that had been crafted out of a bunch of 
old KZSC t-shirts. So it's a nice homage to all of the t-shirt art that they've had over the year. That is a cool way to bring together the history of the station's uh, yeah. design. I liked it. Um, and then they have a Leo Blaze sign, which you know I always look for, that three-dimensional uh, co- station call letter sign made yeah. by this guy, Leo Blaze. Card- so they had one of those. cardboard letters. Yeah. So I'm always excited to see that. <laughs> Jennifer, I understand that you had a chance to attend uh, some radio art panels. Is that right? Yeah, I feel like I had a very skewed view of the conference because in the morning I went to see a presentation on the history of radio and transmission art. And it was so good that I went to see another session about radio art in the afternoon. So to well, me, that was a huge highlight of the day Um there's a new professor at UC Santa Cruz who's a sound artist, Professor Anna Frizz. So in the morning, she talked about the history of radio and transmission art, which was fascinating. She talked about intersections between the avant-garde movement, the early days of the avant-garde movement, coinciding with the early days of radio. Wow. Um, and so how the people who were building and tinkering, you know, how that how those processes were taking place at the same time that there were these art movements Um, and, and that radio technology was involved in a number of instruments, including the theremin. So it's like, it's things I had, I'd been aware of a lot of these things, but I hadn't really put it all together. Um, And that's the thing about radio art. It sort of encompasses a lot of different areas. So I feel like I don't have a full grasp on it. Sure. So it's really helpful to, hear her history of radio art as big as sound itself she also has a college radio past and was program director of a college station in canada as all your friends must i know (laughs) and yes we all have college radio past and present and she talked about some of the experimental radio projects that that she did over college radio including 24-hour days of radio art Uh, she closed both of her sessions talking about how college radio has a huge opportunity um as far as it's a great venue to play radio art and experimental sounds and she talked about the late night part of the college radio schedule in particular Mm -hmm. and she said that you know that graveyard shift often two to six a.m is often underutilized and listeners are particularly open during the late night hours to hearing <laughs> strange things. Yes, they are. And so she kind of implored radio stations to consider airing experimental material and radio art during those hours, especially in lieu of running repeats of programming or in lieu of running automation. Why not do something more experimental? So I totally appreciated that sort of call to action and yeah. uh, and I hope you know people in the room for both of the sessions that I attended where she was leading them people seemed very interested and attentive so it would be cool if she if she helped to inspire people to air more experimental material on their stations well that's really wonderful thanks so much for sharing uh, your experience with us at at that conference and um if people want to to read more or find out more, I assume you're going to be writing it up in your in your copious free time. Oh yes, there will be a full report on Radio Survivor, and and you can always I will also have a link to a station tour that I did at KZSC a number of years ago. If you want to see 
pictures of some of the things of which I spoke. Right. The beautiful uh, campus radio station at UC Santa Cruz. Well, thanks so much, yes. Jennifer. Have a good week. Thank you. Thank you, Jennifer. Uh, I wish I went to as many conferences as Jennifer does. <laughs> sure is a privilege. It, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Well, it's a privilege that she reports back on it for us. And, you know, I know you mentioned it in the interview, but people really do need to check out her work at radiosurvivor.com every single week. There is nobody else in the world who reports on college radio every single week. Huh. There's been, especially not with this kind of sustained effort that Jennifer's put into it. I just think that needs to be highlighted and called out and, and much respect paid to that, to that effort. And it is actual effort that goes into it. And we, and college radio is better for it. And we're all, uh, we're all a little better for it. So thank you, uh, very much for the, for all of that effort, Jennifer. And we'd love, we do really want to hear from you all. I mean, we, so we bring out, we, we, we throw out some ideas, we throw out some proposals and, uh, do we, are you, do, are any of you ever like talking back to us in your head or maybe in your car? We want to hear it. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com. It's tough. It's tough for all of us to keep our focus and to keep caring sometimes and to keep putting in the effort. But uh, somehow radio still keeps us entranced. That's that's mostly it, right? We, we, we give out the email. We tell people to check out the website. Yeah, we'd love for them to, you know, rate us on iTunes. We could use some new rating. We could love some new ratings or some new uh, reviews. iTunes is the main discovery platform for podcasts still in this this year 2016. So help us out a little bit. Go and click some stars or uh, go and leave us a quick review. Just a few sentences um, would be – or a few words, really, could be fantastic. I remember – Jake Fogelness, when he had a podcast on Earwolf, uh, he told he asked people to write anything. It didn't have to be a review for the show, and many people would write re- restaurant reviews and haikus or copy and paste things out of novels. I don't know what, and uh, and he sort of proved the model that iTunes can't doesn't see too deeply into the reviews. And of course, his listeners were often witty, hysterically funny people. Ah, reading, I like that idea. Reading uh, the old Jake, the Fogelness Files um, show reviews on iTunes is still very, very entertaining. I'm going to steal that. So I think uh, we would we would welcome, if you it could be, uh, you know, as if you were writing a caption for a family circus cartoon or uh, Garfield without Garfield. <laughs> Garfield without John. No, yeah, Garfield without Garfield. Garfield right, without right. Garfield. Sorry. Yeah. See Radio Survivor without Radio Survivor. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Thank you. <laughs>